Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we answer the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. And I'm LeVon Brown. And And it's it's time time to get get uncomfortable. As a student at Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, Bob Zellner took a course in race relations when he and some fellow students got the idea to interview Dr. King and Rosa Parks. Between that and attending civil rights meetings with black students, it nearly got Zellner expelled. However, the words of Parks resonated with him. She said, Bob, you can't study the racial problem forever. You have to eventually take a stand and you have to take action. And take action he did. The son and grandson of Klansmen, Bob knew he was crossing the Rubicon. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Thank you, Loki. I'm very happy to be here with both of you. And uh, uh, hello from Fairhope, Alabama. Uh, which we call L.A., Lower Alabama. All right. We're going to jump around a little bit uh, with your story because there's so many, you know, quite frankly, fascinating things to cover. But first, um, yeah, I mentioned that your your grandfather and your father were both at one time in the Klan. Um, what were your memories about that, about particularly your grandfather being in a Klan? Well, uh, Loki, uh, <clears throat> when I was a child, I didn't really understand uh, what it meant about the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I did know that my father uh, grew up in Birmingham and uh, his father was a Klansman. His brothers uh, were Klansmen and his sisters were, at least one of them was a very enthusiastic member of the Klan Auxiliary for women. And uh, it was it was very unlikely that with that background I would ever get involved in the civil rights movement. But uh, as luck would have it, I was a a ministerial student. My father became a Methodist minister. And so I went to our uh, uh, Methodist school in Montgomery, Alabama. And I graduated high school here in Mobile in 1957. So I was in uh, Montgomery for uh, shortly after the victory of the Montgomery bus boycott. And uh, what many people think is the uh, beginning of the modern phase of the civil rights movement. So uh, I think I was very lucky that I was in a sociology class given an uh, assignment with the rest of the class to write a paper about uh, the quote racial problem and write uh, about solutions to the problem. So five of us in the class after reading the uh, books on the subject decided that we'd do, we were sociologists so we would go do a little field work and we knew about the Montgomery bus boycott that that was one approach to uh, ending the quote racial problem of segregation because they had ended segregation uh, legal segregation on the buses in Montgomery. Um, but, but my memories as a child, um, <clears throat> I remember when my father was able to break from the Ku Klux Klan, uh, his father and mother disowned him and his brothers never spoke to him again. But my mother was very happy about it, so she took his uh, Klan robes and cut them up and made white shirts for us to go to Sunday school in. So uh, that's one childhood memory that uh, there were two sides to my one family. And one reason that mother's uh, side of the family were not uh, enthusiastic about the Ku Klux Klan was that she came from the uh, Native American uh, side of uh, American society. Her family were from Bluntstown, Florida, the Panhandle of Florida, which is also uh, called LA, Lower Alabama. And uh, they didn't didn't like the Ku Klux Klan any more than African-Americans did. I was extremely lucky that my father was he took the major step in uh, breaking with the Ku Klux Klan. So it was easier for me when I came along in high school. Uh, 
I remember going uh, to Murphy High School in Mobile, and that was uh, when the first black student, Arthurine Lucy, went to the University of Alabama. And uh, that was when I first became aware that uh, my thoughts and feelings about segregation were um, considerably at odds with uh, almost the entire population of Alabama, including all my high school friends, most of them. And uh, I learned a lot just by speaking up and saying I thought it was a good idea for authoring Lucy to go to the University of Alabama. I thought it would be good for the university and good for my state. Yeah. Now, now there was you, you, your father's story in regards of his uh, becoming becoming enlightened, if you will, it, it takes place in World War II. And it's, it's, it's a unique experience. And I thought, if you don't mind sharing that a little bit, and then what we can actually learn from that experience, I think there's, there's a lesson in that. Well, yes, uh, Loki, that was definitely, I think there was a strong lesson in that. Um, <clears throat> and probably because my father came from a, a very, Christian fundamentalist background and a, and a Klan background. I, I say I come from Christian fundamentalist terrorist. Um, but he went to, to Germany uh, in the middle of the 1930s because he and my mother both were graduates of Bob Jones College that became Bob Jones University. And it's still known as not a hotbed of uh, Southern progressivism for sure. Um, but at that time, they had the idea, uh, old man Dr. Bob Jones, who I'm named after, he's my godfather, and I think I'm one of the biggest disappointments that uh, Bob Jones ever had. Um, they had the idea of going to Europe in the middle 30s, 1935, 1936, um, shortly after Hitler had come to power, to form in the middle of Europe a Christian fundamentalist uh, institution uh, whose main aim would be to convert the Jews to be Christians to try to save them from uh, persecution by the Nazis. And I remember as a, as a small child, uh, my father talking to us kids about being in Europe um, as the Second World War was uh, about to break upon the world. And um, he was, he, he talked about being in Germany. He'd had to dodge the uh, Gestapo. And he was in Poland, Latvia, Estonia, and parts of the Soviet Union. So he had to constantly be dodging the police uh, because he was going with uh, various people to these little underground churches all over uh, Europe. And um, so I, told, I, I said to my father, well, I can see how break uh, philosophically with the, the, uh, the Nazis and the, and the fascists. Uh, but I said, something deeper happened to you uh, in your heart. Uh, tell me about that. So he told me that, uh, he said, well, we'd been traveling uh, after Bob Jones and the other uh, preachers from the South had come back to the United States, he was left there to do the organizing of this center. And um, he said he'd been traveling for about eight or nine months in the dead of winter in uh, Russia. And um, he said, uh, while they were on this uh, tour of going to the, all these little underground churches, um, he said he, his uh, little group, he was only traveling with a, a guide and, a, and an interpreter, a driver. And he said they joined up with a group of gospel singers from Georgia and Alabama. These were all, they were all uh, African-Americans, people of color. And he said uh, it'd been so long since he'd heard any uh, English spoken that he was just uh, just in love with uh, talking with them, and he said, "We prayed the same song, uh, prayed the same prayers, and sang the same songs, 
And he said, one day I thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I forgot they were black. And he said, uh, I kept uh, having this conversation with myself. And I said, uh, you know, this is very important. You're white and they're black. And uh, he said, but I found out it didn't make much difference in Europe because everybody called us the Americans. And the Europeans didn't make any distinction between the black Americans and the white Americans. So daddy said, uh, I decided to make it easy on myself and I would just forget about it while I was over here. And then when I'd get back to Birmingham, I'd be a good Klansman again. But he said that ruined me as a Klansman. So that was one of my early lessons as a child that it's uh, what people are inside their heart and that all people really are basically the same. And I was in a society where they would tell me that it was so much different, you couldn't even be friends. Well, and I, and I think that's so telling to me is, is, you know, you have these divisions and we have these divisions today. People were in a hypersegregated society, but here he is in this situation where he's, you know, breaking bread and having, you know, conversations. Uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're definitely in a foreign land and, and many of us feel like we're in a foreign land even being in America. Um, but that, you know, there's, there's crossing that divide and just seeing people for who they are, not what they are. And, and so even a Klansman forced into a situation like this, you know, can, can see the light. And, and I think for us today, that, that, that to me, that was such a powerful message when I read that part of the story about your dad was like, wow, I mean, uh, people can change. Um, LaVon, I mean, what's, you're, you're hearing this for the first time. I mean, what was your, your reaction? I think, Bob, do you remember who it was that you brought to, down to Jackson? Was it your father or your grandfather? Um, they used to be in the Klan. I don't know if you remember the, the place right across the street from uh, from the office on Lynch Street. There was a cafe. And we brought him down. You brought him down. And he you had, uh, I don't know, we had lunch over there. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, but I, th I'm, I, I think it was my father, not my grandfather. It was your father, right? Yeah, I, I guess what I'm, you know, what I'm hearing is sort of when you, there is a goodness in people, uh, white or black, and when they're taking away, when they're taken away from what they came up with, anything can happen, because the, I guess the goodness comes out, and um, they become. What we what we like to think they're going to become, and that's why there's such an interest in keeping us apart in this country that we don't ever figure that out. Mm. Uh, we don't ever uh, reach out and touch the other guy because if we do that, if we do that a lot, then we might forget that we're different. Right. And if we do that, then the people in charge, whoever they are. Uh, lose the keepers and the kept. The keepers yeah. being, you know, the poor whites, the kept being people of color. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that that's what caused the change. I'm not surprised though. You remember the Nazis used to go to the black soldiers when they were in Germany and say, why are you fighting for this country? You know, here's yeah. X. You know what? You know now they would kill you just as quickly, but they didn't. Understand. They says, "Well, why are you doing it?" And quite frankly, I've asked the same question. Mm. But I've met people who grew up in the environment that Bob did uh, that are no longer those people. Yeah, they, it, it's it's all nonsense. I think America was the ones that came up with the colors. Right. So Bob, so. Um... You end up joining SNCC and you head to Atlanta and a week later, Jim Foreman shows up. Now, he doesn't trust you. He wants to get your whole story down and it's because you are white. 
particularly you're a white Southerner, you are a white Southern man. Here you are, you, you are enthusiastically involved, you, you, you're, you, you've, you're committing yourself to this cause, but there's a level of distrust going, wait a second, I don't know you. And the only thing I know about you is that you are white. What, what did that do to you? Well, uh, <clears throat> we, we've just uh, finished uh, filming uh, some of the uh, scenes from the book uh, here in Alabama in a, a movie that was made called Son of the South. And uh, that's a, a big scene in, uh, in the movie when, uh, uh, when I come, well, I'm in Atlanta because when I first got there, uh, there was a young black student, uh, Ed King, who had been taking care of the office uh, as the uh, executive uh, director for the summer. And when I got there, uh, he said, uh, well, I'm leaving. And I said, when are you coming back? He said, I'm not coming back. He gave me a briefcase and said, uh, open up the office at a certain time, close it up at a certain time, and, and take care of this briefcase. So when he left out, I was there, left to answer the telephone. And uh, of course, Jim Foreman, when he showed up, uh, not only was I white, but uh, at that time, I had hardly ever been out of the state of Alabama. And I had a really backwoods, uh, Southern uh, Pecklewood uh, accent. So, in fact, I've heard uh, uh, recordings of my uh, myself at that time, and uh, my daughters Margaret and Katie listened to the same uh, recording with Tom Hayden. We were talking about what's happening in uh, Macomb, Mississippi, and um, they said, "Well, that sounds like Tom Hayden, but..." Daddy, are you sure that's you? So I was, I, I spoke at a whole different uh, uh, accent at that time. So of course he was uh, suspicious. Why does a white cat like you, he said, want to come to a black outfit like this and work? And so, and he put a big wall and sack uh, tape recorder up on the desk and he put a microphone in my in my face and he said i want to know everything about you from the time you were born till right now and brother it better check out so he he was letting me know and know in certain times that in terms that i was on uh, probation and um, in a way i guess i've been on probation ever since but the idea was that if you were white you could always decide to go back and be white some more um, and so I took that as a, as a lifelong uh, commitment that I was going to stay with the movement no matter what. And just about everybody that involved in SNCC and the, and the southern part of the civil rights movement, still, we're still doing the work. We, we are not going to let up yet. And I'm 81 now and will soon be 82. And I expect another 20 years of organizing i hope so but um so but when when, when you join snick what what they initially want you to do is they want you to talk to other white people yeah and uh, how did that work out well uh it worked out pretty good but uh one of the problems was that um one of the first staff meetings i went to uh it was probably the first full staff meeting that SNCC uh, had when the staff was formed was in Macomb, Mississippi. And uh, that was right after Herbert Lee was murdered for even attempting to register to vote. And um, so my first, uh, first meeting, I was uh, arrested and beaten. And uh, so this is, this is October 4th, 1961, correct? October 4th, 1961, yeah. Now, now, you, now you're saying a beating. Now, a mob is descending upon you. They've got chains and bricks and bats and lead pipes. And to the point where they're even trying to pull your eye out of your socket. Yep, yep. I mean, what was, was this, was this, real, this was like your first real, was this your, was this your first real encounter with Okay, I'm probably going to die here. 
Oh yeah, I I thought I was going to have the shortest uh, civil rights career in history. It was my first demonstration, <laughs> first time I was ever in a march, and these people are overreacting. They're about to kill me right now, and um, but uh, you see that was one of the uh, contradictions of me being a, a campus traveler. I'm supposed to be going to white campuses, and uh, a lot of people said, well, if you go get arrested and everything, you're not going to get on very many white campuses. But I couldn't be a part of SNCC if I was just going to say, well, you guys go and do that. I'm going to stay back at the SNCC office and be safe and not get arrested. I had to be a real part of SNCC if I was going to represent SNCC. So that was a decision that I had to make uh, under fire. And uh, those high school students, these were high school students. Brenda Travis had already been arrested three times for the civil, uh, for the freedom rides. And I, she was, uh, I think she was 16 years old. I was 19 or 20, I guess, but uh, young enough. But these uh, young people, and finally I said to myself, well, what's going to happen to them? I kept telling myself, I can't go because daddy will lose his church and Mother's a school teacher, she'll lose her job. And finally I said to myself, what's gonna to happen to the parents of these children? Uh, and then I realized if I was gonna be a part of SNCC, I had to be all the way. So, uh, but that also made a, a big difference in the long run of my work because um, then it became a, a task of showing that white Southerners could join the front ranks of the civil rights movement and be involved in everything and still survive. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I brag on being 81 years old. I survived and we're still, still kicking and ticking. Yeah. We got, you know, like, like a Joan Browning and, and my mom, uh, you know, Joan yeah. Trump power. I mean, these are white Southern women, you know, white Southerners who are involved in this, but uh, you, this wasn't your, you know, a lot of people would look at this and say, this wasn't your fight. This was, this was, I mean, you, you've, you've heard this before. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. And it was more our fight than anybody else's. Uh, and one of the reasons that we had to go uh, to work with the white people was that it was the white people that were the problem. It wasn't the black people that were the problem. Uh, it was the fact that our country was founded on uh, genocide against the native people. And, uh, and the institution of slavery. And talk about uh, the way we look at uh, race in this country. South Africa learned from us. Hitler himself learned uh, his uh, system of racism from the United States. So here we are, we're fighting for democracy and uh, freedom and the great beacon of freedom around the world. And we have the most racist country probably that ever existed. Mm. Now, you said Macomb, Mississippi. Now, LaVon, are you familiar with Macomb? I didn't go to Macomb, but I met a lot of the students. I was going to find, I was going to ask Bob, because a lot of them came to live in Jackson, a lot of the students. Sure, yeah. That, right down the street from, from Freedom House, well, not from Freedom House, from the office. Yeah. And I was, first of all, I was wondering, who closed the schools at the, because the children left, they closed or the other way around? Uh, no, the, uh, the schools weren't closed. Uh, it was the, the fact that they were all expelled for, ah. uh, for participating. And that's okay. when they had to go uh, up to Jackson and they had to, um, and later on we had to have the freedom schools and, and all that. But uh, right. yeah, Brenda, uh, Brenda was sent to uh, reform school and then uh, as a, uh, when she got out, she went to Talladega, Alabama uh, to live uh, with a professor's family there. Right. And, uh, but uh, yeah, they had, to, they had to go elsewhere and continue their education because they were expelled. They weren't, wouldn't be allowed back in school. Okay. You say reform school, is this like a juvenile delinquency type of thing, reform school? Or? She was sent to jail. Sure. Yes. So they're trying to reform her to not be so uh, to, to to go to get back in her place. To get back in her place, yes. And 
we were all of the uh, people that were arrested on that march we were charged with contributing to the delinquency of minors right along with other other charges yeah reform schools in the south i don't know if they, if they had them in the north or not but they're notorious hmm. because the typically what happened was the children went through hell being there because they had to act a certain way they had to to uh, respond to the elders a certain way and they used to get beaten i mean we had one just outside of jackson so the last place you wanted to be was in reform school uh i met brenda i didn't know her until i think i met her in chicago uh, we became uh, quite close actually because we were the same age uh and uh but uh she used to talk about that she talked to vera who was the lady i lived with in, in chicago at first uh but i had met a lot of the students from macomb but i had forgotten why they were all in jackson and i thought the school i got it now okay yeah i met a lot of them so now um so you're in snick and then you become the first white snick field secretary is that correct i was the first white southern field secretary yes yeah how'd that happen uh well when i um uh it, when i graduated college finally i was the only one of the five that graduated on time because i didn't they said that we had to resign from school and i wasn't a law student but i could tell the difference between resign and expel and i said i haven't done anything to resign for i'm not going to resign and uh, so things just kept on going until finally it was june and graduation time and i graduated and i i worked at highlander folk school uh, that summer and while i was there um the southern conference educational fund and braden and carl braden uh they were going to make a contribution to snick for a campus traveler to uh, try to go on white campuses white college campuses around the south and kind of uh, be a liaison between the movement and the white uh, southern students so that's the way i uh, i've spent my summer of uh, 61 and um so they told me about the job uh that uh, would might be available at snick and not realizing there wouldn't be very many applicants i applied for the job and got the job so uh, that was uh and coming on the staff um if you were a member of the staff and were going to work in the office you were called a field secretary so i wasn't the field secretary i was a field secretary okay but you were the first white first white southerner to be a field secretary wow um but then eventually snick under stokely carmichael changes course and they begin expelling whites that was did you think that was the right move uh no i didn't think it was the right right move and i i uh i didn't argue strenuously against it but i was not in favor of it because um i understood what what uh i and i never say anything about whites being expelled from uh from snick i'd say that there was a a need by 1960 let's see when did it happen 1966 or 1967 there was an overwhelming need for the movement to begin uh organizationally to uh work with poor and working class white southerners because that was the the fodder for the uh, Ku Klux Klan and the right wing so we had to do that and um uh, so i saw it as an encouragement to go and uh work with white southerners and um i was pretty well qualified for that being a white southerner coming from a Ku Klux Klan family uh so Uh, I started the Grow Project, Dottie and I, in the summer, uh, summer and fall of 1967, and that's what what we did uh, when 
when SNCC became all black, uh, we went on the staff of SCEF, the Southern Conference Educational Fund, and we worked on the GROW project, which we call grassroots organizing work. And we also call it Get Rid of Wallace, George Wallace, because we wanted the white people that we were going to be working with to know right away who we were, where we were coming from, and what was our point of view. Because uh, you can't sneak up on white Southerners on the race question. And uh, you have to confront it at the beginning, full force. They know exactly where you because the FBI is going to be right behind you anyway with pictures and all kinds of things. And they're going to say, these are dangerous communists and so forth. So we'd tell them all that to begin with. And uh, we'd say, we want to work with you uh, <clears throat> if possible. And uh, we got involved in situations like Laurel, Mississippi, where there was a strike and they needed a black white unity um, to win the strike. And that's where, that's where we worked, but we let them know right away who we were and where we were coming from. Yeah, you know, I, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that about, about SNCC because the, the general perception is, is obviously that, you know, John Lewis and Stokely just have a, a disagreement in the direction of SNCC and Stokely just wants to take it into this all black situation and is telling whites, go, go work with whites. And it's a, it's a kicking out of whites from SNCC. But you're, you're, it was high time that we do that. And uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it was extremely terrifying because it had been bad enough when we were working basically in the uh, black community in the South. But we felt safe and we felt uh, secure in the black community because we were surrounded by people who were tremendously courageous, had already suffered a lot. And um, they, I was amazed at how early on uh, the old black women and the old black men in the South could accept me, uh, obviously uh, a white Southern redneck peckerwood. And uh, I would ask them sometimes, how can you um, take me in, feed me, give me a place to sleep and everything. And uh, how can you not hate white people? Because I couldn't imagine being a black person and not wanting to kill every white person I saw. And uh, they said, well, <clears throat> we can't afford to hate. Uh, hate is a poison, they said, that corrodes the container it's carried in. It's an acid. And um, we've got enough trouble already, and we can't be uh, spiritually, physically, and mentally healthy if we're going around hating all the time, which is one of the basic uh, principles of nonviolence, that you have to forgive people and not hate them. When SNCC was separated, uh, you know, no, the, uh, it was separated. I mean, you would, the white people were told to go do this, the black people were told to go do this. And my feeling on that has always been that it was done in the wrong way because a lot of the white people sort of disappeared and didn't want anything else to do with it because they didn't quite understand if they had done all this, some didn't understand, that if they've done all this work, why they were being put aside this way. And I don't think that was ever completely explained uh, I think that's what bothered John more than anything else, because for a lot of reasons, that's where the money was. Uh, the people had paid their dues, uh, and they had proven to be helpful. And as long as uh, the Black people got credit for what they did, because the tendency in, historically has always been uh, if there was credit to be given out, it was to some white guy. But that's not what happened in the civil rights movement. And I think that uh, a lot of people felt put out uh, when they had to leave. Uh, did you ever, you, obviously you didn't feel that way, but did you hear about that? Was that a part of what happened to the movement? Because SNCC- Oh, sure, yes. Uh, yeah, I heard about that. Um, in fact, I experienced a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the heartbreaking things because uh, some uh, 
some of our comrades, uh, they took a vow never to speak to a white person again. So uh, we had, a, you know, a funny situation. We'd be in a car together going somewhere and um, having a conversation and one person will look at another and, and say, will you tell uh, Ralph so-and-so and so-and-so? And, -so? and that person would say, no, you tell Ralph, he's right there. And, you know, so it was uh, one of the things the government did in the COINTELPRO program is that they took uh, any uh, division in the movement and they did everything they could to make it uh, uh, to exacerbate the divisions. And I, I learned very early on that there was two kinds of black nationalism. Uh, there was narrow black nationalism and there was revolutionary black nationalism. And it was ironic in some ways that uh, Malcolm X, who was the great black prince of black nationalism, he was in the process of going from a, an exclusivist position, a separatist position, to a revolutionary black nationalism. And at the same time, SNCC, which had been uh, integrated, was going from uh, a revolutionary type of activity to a more narrow black nationalism. And uh, so that was uh, one of the analysis that, uh, that we made. And uh, in fact, uh, Claiborne Carson, in his uh, the third edition to his book on SNCC, the history of SNCC, uh, in the introduction, he said, uh, in the late 60s, 67, 68, 69, SNCC gave up uh, several of its weapons that had taken it into great success. They gave up grassroots community organizing. It gave up uh, nonviolence as a, as a principle of organizing, and it gave up interracial work together. And uh, his question was, they, those were weapons that had uh, caused Nick to be very successful and win lots and lots of um, campaigns and battles. And his question was, what did uh, the COINTELPRO uh, narrow nationalism have to offer in place of those weapons? And uh, that was a question I think was never fully answered uh, because uh, SNCC uh, suffered uh, a triple whammy about that same time. So here's, wh here's what was happening in SNCC. Uh, SNCC took a position on the Vietnam War and uh, when Martin Luther King finally came around to our point of view, we we did our best to move him to that that position. Uh, he had very little public support. His public support was lower than Trump's is right now, uh, about 24%. And when he came out against the uh, Vietnam War, even a lot of the people in the civil rights movement, a lot of the leaders uh, denounced Martin Luther King for doing that. So SNCC had become uh, against the Vietnam War. They came out in favor of Palestinian self-determination, as they should have. Uh, we can't fight for the self-determination of uh, people of color in this country and not uh, fight for self-determination of uh, people in other countries. So, and uh, they became an all-black organization. So all of these three or four things coming together, um, that was a huge burden for SNCC to overcome. And uh, SNCC as, a, as an organization didn't last very many years after they took that position. 10 years on all. About we 10 years. We, we lasted 10 years. Yeah. From beginning to end. We did a heck of a lot in 10 years and it took a long time for the history departments to catch up with uh, how important SNCC was, but they're doing it now. And Loki, you're doing a good job of helping spread the story. Thank you. No, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I just, it's, it's, it's interesting because you, you talk, you know, when, so as, as there is this, 
movement towards uh, only black membership within SNCC. It, it's it's interesting that you know today in this day and age where people are just learning about you know you and my mom and other white activists, they're they're shocked because most white people and and definitely some black people are 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 like. I didn't know white people were involved in the movement. Yeah. And so there was this kind of rewriting of the history. There's even, there's even instances where my mom's, the, the, the Jackson sit-in is illustrated where she is actually a person of color. Yeah, that's wow. amazing. That, that's an iconic photograph of yeah. uh, John Salter and- Ann Moody. Yeah. yeah. It, and, and and so you have this kind of rewriting of this history that's kind of starting to be revealed again. Um, yeah. And it seems that it's kind of, was there, do you think there was some damage done in, re, in respects to how white America views the civil rights movement without seeing themselves as part of that in respects well, to- uh, One of the things as a historian, um, and I did go back to graduate school to study for a PhD in history. Um, <clears throat> the documentation is very important, which Jim Foreman talked about all the time. But uh, one of the unfortunate things is that the eyes on the prize is the way that a lot of people were introduced to the civil rights movement. And that was at the height of the black power movement when it was not very fashionable to talk about the great contribution or the participation of large numbers of uh, young white people. So a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the footage actually that was shot for uh, Eyes on the Prize, uh, it turned out teaching people that there were very few white people uh, involved in the movement. It was mostly a black, uh, a black movement. So, uh, and I know that uh, some of the people in SNCC that worked uh, so hard and did such a good job on Eyes on the Prize, they just get mad as, as all get out when I point that out. And they say that's not true. But I think that there was a, uh, a downplaying of the role of white people in the movement from Eyes on the Prize. And that coupled with the fact that most of the professional historians in the United States were paying attention to the adults and not the young people. So in many, many ways, the story of SNCC being an interracial band of sisters and brothers in her circle of trust was not told. I, I think, I think the, the problem was what happens with a lot with history, which is when people looked back, they were afraid that the credit for whatever progress we made would would be given to the white participants in the in the uh, in the movement. And I think things got colored over, uh, where the 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 white people that were involved uh, didn't get credit for doing anything, and many of them. Uh, took their own accomplishments and uh, took a back seat, whereas they were very involved in what was going on. And even to this day, they do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the problem is that we have not, first of all, let's go back a minute. You know, Stokely was into Pan-Africanism. So it was only obvious that it was only, uh, you know, he, had to, he was gonna end up where he was gonna end up because of who he was. That does not neither bad nor good, but he did not come from a background where you had uh, an integrated uh, uh, that we fought this as white and black. That's not where he came from. That is that's what John believed in, but that's not what Stokely believed in. And I know that a lot of people now say, "Oh yes, that's true. Yeah, he did." No, he didn't. And but he was right in the fact that we needed to include uh, the white side of the equation. The problem was it didn't need to be split to do that. So that split that occurred in 67 or whenever Stokely took over going forward just meant that the white people that were involved uh, didn't get the credit because the theory was we couldn't give them credit 
because they always got it. And, and black people did not. And we've gone full circle on that because if you look at the demonstrations now in the streets, it's what we were. Not to the degree, I mean, I, I think it's beautiful that so many of the kids have said, wait a minute, you know, let's do this. White, black, yellow, they do that. And we did that, but it stopped. It stopped because we stopped believing in what we were doing, I think. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting you say that because you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, I often talk about the, the, the civil rights movement as the first true American revolution that involved all Americans. Because the American revolution that we talk about, you know, we don't even consider that one eighth of the Continental Army under George Washington's command were African American. An eighth. That's not even, you know, that's not what we, we talk about. So, so African Americans are, are, are written out of the story. And then we come up to the Civil Rights Movement, and white people are written out of the story. And in both situations, we kind of lose some of, we, we lose part of that story and part of the important narrative that now definitely the American Revolution was, you know, you know, for white people, you know, that's not, you know, mince words there. But the, as you were saying earlier, Bob, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the civil rights movement, you know, was for everyone. That you were involved because this was your fight. Uh, just as much as anyone else's. But uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the principles that we uh, internalized in our slick work was that uh, Jim Foreman was uh, very clear on this, that we're not doing it for credit. We're, we don't care who gets the credit. And uh, if you don't care who gets the credit, you can get a lot of work done if people are shouldering each other about who's going to get in front of the uh, uh, camera and, and get the credit and so forth. And that was one of the cultural changes that occurred when John Lewis uh, was no longer chairman of SNCC uh, because uh, there's, it's not accidental that uh, one of Stokely's nicknames was Star Michael. And uh, there were, I, I believe, I'm a, a Marxist, so I believe that there's uh, positive and negative aspects to just about everything. And there were some very positive aspects to uh, Abby Hoffman and, uh, and Stokely Carmichael being such stars, is that they, they knew how to make the news. And uh, Stokely, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, he actually practiced a, a form of revolutionary suicide uh, when his uh, showmanship came to the fore in places like uh, Lowndes County, Alabama. And in the presence of the press and uh, large crowds and so forth, uh, he, would, uh, he would cuss the sheriff and he'd say, you are a, a ignorant, illiterate, tobacco-chewing peck of wood um, that doesn't know, uh, you, you don't know how to even do your job. And people would say, Stokely, brother, you can't talk to the sheriff like that. You're going to wind up dead. And then Stokely would be on NBC the next morning with grinning that grin. And then people would say, man, he talked to that sheriff like he was anything but a child of God. And there he is grinning on television the next day. So Stokely would go right up to the, uh, to the edge of, of getting killed to delegitimize what they called the law. So uh, there were good aspects and bad aspect, aspects to the showmanship. But mainly we were taught not to uh, be self-promoters and not to worry about who got the credit. But then <clears throat> when we get retired, you get 81 years old and we don't have any social security. Well, thank goodness we have a little bit because uh, they, we got $10 a week and uh, they took out social security for us. So, uh, but you still need to uh, have a little bit for your retirement. So we write books and we do movies and so forth. And then you have to be a little bit self-promoting, but um, it goes against the grain a little bit when you have to, 
uh, be a self promoter. Yeah, but but at the same time, I mean, there's there's I mean, there's a there's a stark difference between that and, and someone who's always preening in front of the cameras. Uh, there's there's the need for examples and the need for these stories to be told. Uh, but but it's interesting that you say that because I've always kind of every time I would talk to my mom, she would always down she downplayed everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I never understood that in because you know, it was always like, no, there were thousands of people involved in the movement. I was just one person. And she'll even say, look, you know, the difference between me and everyone else is that my son was a filmmaker, you know. That's um, right. and, 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 and but now I understand a little more of, of, of you know, of, of where that comes from. And I mean, and you, and you when you start to think about the character of John Lewis and, and, and others, you start to see that as well is that. So they were never about themselves. No matter how big they got, no matter how much of the camera was put in front of them, even in the latter years, at least I never got the the impression that, you know, John started believing what, you know, started reading his own press clippings. That's what made SNCC successful, was that whatever I did, whoever was in charge would do the same thing. I I could depend on that. if I looked out for somebody, if somebody was looking out for me, it was not about me. It was about the people. And that changed. Uh, and, and one did not care whether they were white or black. That's why so many black people were upset when Goodman and Shiny and those people were killed. That's what, when Viola Luizzo was killed, which everybody seems to have forgotten. Because those were people. Those were our people. And... We started having heroes, I think, with the, there was, who was the the lawyer from the NACP? Uh, What's her name? Um, Because she warned us in SNCC about having leaders, you know. Ella Baker said. Ella Baker. She said, don't do it. She said, because what will happen is the press will focus on that one or two people and the rest of you can forget about it. And that's what happened. And if that person makes a mistake, you know, that's going to be, you know, feasted upon and, and uh, the press will, will find whatever edge they can get to bring that person down, to bring down the organization, to discredit. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, so, so you see, uh, it's, yeah, I, I think about today with like one of the arguments that some people make about Black Lives Matter as a movement is that there doesn't seem to be a leader. And, and and people struggle with that idea that there's not some central character they can point to. Like you need a Dr. King, you know, we're, we're so infatuated with the idea that there needs to be some sort of central leadership to, uh, to move things forward. And, and, and yet look at the change that's taking place because of organizations like, like Black Lives Matter. I think eventually, eventually you do, because you need, you need somebody to articulate what it is you're trying to do. But you don't need that right away because you don't, all you have to do is be pissed off, which these kids are, and in general talk about what it is that's pissing you off. And they're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. And eventually they will say, what is it we need to do? Quite frankly, my feeling is the establishment knows what they have to do. They really do. It's they don't know how to go about it. And that's all you need all those kids for, is how do you go about this? Because some of it isn't going to happen tomorrow. It'll happen years from now. But how do we get there? And that's what you asked them, because that is the future. That's, that's who will be in charge. So, Bob, what's, what, what do you hope uh, people take away from your experience in the movement? I mean, now we've been talking about not shining a light on people and so forth, but we're going to shine a light on you. From, from, from what you did, from the the background that you came from, the transformation and so forth that's taken place in your family in that respects. Well, you know uh, what uh, uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks said to us uh, when we got trapped in the church and we were going to be arrested. Uh, she said, "You you can." Uh, we can help you escape. We can get you out of this church, maybe maybe without you getting arrested. 
but uh, you can't study it forever. Something's going to happen in front of you, uh, and you're going to have to um, make a decision. You're going to have to take an action. You're going to have to take a side. You're not going to be able to be uh, a scholar and just study it the rest of your life. And you've really got to get involved. Um, and that was absolutely true. There was no way that you uh, could not take a side in those days. But, you know, in a way, talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, SNCC was the Black Lives Matter of the late 90s, uh, late uh, 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 of 1959 and the early 60s. 60, 60, right. Yeah, and, and people were, uh, were outraged at what, what SNCC was doing. This was terrible that we were, uh, and they were outraged about what Dr. King was doing even before. And the, uh, the churchmen kept saying, you know, you're making it worse. You're making it hard to, harder to uh, get to uh, reach uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. And he knew that wasn't correct. Um, and we knew that we were doing a good thing. So Black Lives Matter is doing exactly the same thing. Um, one of the uh, difficulties, I think, with Black Lives Matter is that I'm, I'm not sure that the uh, young people involved uh, at the level of Black Lives Matter, uh, they don't quite understand the difference between mobilization and organization. Uh, organization, you have to have mobilization, but for the long-term battle, and mm -hmm. it was Ella Baker and, uh, and uh, Miles Horton and uh, so many people said, this is a lifelong struggle and it won't be it won't be completed in our lifetime. It won't be done. It's going to go on for centuries now because racism is so uh, deeply stained into our history and in our background. So it's going to take a long time struggle. That means organization. But once again, you got to look at both sides because uh, we always complained about the slowness and the legalization, legal, uh, the legalization approach of the NAACP. But the NAACP was established. It was an organization. It had roots in the, in the communities. And uh, when we were arrested and we needed lawyers or somebody to come and bail us out, we were yep. sure glad to see Jack Young when he showed up in Macomb. Oh, yeah. We were about to be taken out to the hanging tree and he had the guts to come in there and put down the bail and say, get in my car, we're getting the hell out of here. So um, all, of the, all of the aspects, all of the pieces of the movement had their role. And uh, now that's what, what we're learning now. But uh, uh, the young people always have to fight for at least uh, look at what we did uh, just in terms of the importance of a correct history. So we have the what's immediately what's in front of us, and then there's the long game, and we have to be willing to 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 fight the battles that are there, but then also have the organizational structure to play the long game, because we have to be sure that the opposition is playing the long game just just as well. Oh, they learned uh, they learned from us very well. The Koch brothers started 25 or 30 years ago. Let's uh, work on school boards. Let's work on uh, city councils. And uh, let's get a right-wing agenda going. You know, I, I think of the the analogy of when you're starting a fire. You know, you start a fire at the top, and it's probably you know the top of a, a heap, and it's probably going to peter out. But the fire always works best when it's at the base, yes, at grassroots, exactly. and that's where everything gets ignited. And so, SNCC was that grassroots fire, that fire at the base that lit everything up and made those changes. Well, Bob, I truly appreciate you joining us. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, you got me. Uh, you got me thinking. I got to get back to my computer and and uh, write. So I'm working on another. Uh, I, I got to do one more uh, edition of my memoir. I thought one would do it, but I'm still here. I got to got to work on the second uh, volume of the memoir okay. and maybe do some more movies. So yeah. young people. Let's uh, work for the next 20 years and make a difference. Right on. Take care, Bob. Good seeing you. Great to see you guys. Thanks. Bye.
Thank you for joining us. Please support this program and the other works of the Joan Trump Howard Mulholland Foundation to end racism by making a contribution. A simple $5 monthly recurring donation makes a huge difference for us and makes what we do possible. You can learn more at jtmfoundation.org. That's jtmfoundation.org. And until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.